Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 to 18. I'm going to read from that in a minute. Let me tell you my clever title here. Um, Believing Christ, His truth is His story. His story. Uh, Last week I used idolatry as an illustration of the disconnectedness and alienation, which I think just is characteristic of the human condition. And I raised the question of how we know God, and of course I think the answer is here in this title. It's through his story and being part of his story. The way that I concluded last week is that the church precedes the world epistemologically or in regard to knowledge. For Christians uh, believe that we know more fully the way things are in Christ from the confessed faith in Christ. Uh, more than from any other source. And so Christ is the lens through which we apprehend all things. He is the Alpha and Omega, as Revelation says. Paul, or rather Peter says in uh, Second Peter, we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we have made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so this truth is one that the apostles witnessed to and that we too witness to. And so the way in which we know Christ and which we know the truth is through this witness, the witness of the apostles, the continued witness of the church. And so the church, we could say, is just, well, we continue to tell the stories of Jesus where the stories of Israel are told, but not just where they're told, but where they're actually enacted, that we enact this story, this narrative in our own lives. And there's really nothing more important than we can do to keep saying, okay, here's the story of Israel. Here's the story of Jesus and to find ourselves in that story. And telling these stories then defines us as a particular kind of people. And it's that through these stories that we begin to I uh, enact the, the ethics of Christ. And so this brings us to the passage in Philippians. Uh, let me read chapter 2, verse 12 to 18. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even as I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, 
I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you to rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Um, Paul is describing then, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying this to the corporate group that uh, I've shared my joy with you. Share your joy with one another. The story that we're living out is the story that Paul told, related in the text, in history, his, his story. It, it's, uh, history matters exactly because in God's mysterious ways, uh, merest mysterious way uh, that we, it, it's still enacted. That is, the past is made, uh, you know, the, the now and uh, the not yet are uh, being worked out in and through history. So the church of the New Testament uh, is the church now. It's the same thing, right? It's the same story. And this is the dynamic community in which truth, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, is being lived out. So as Christians, we don't believe in an eternal truth or truths that can be known apart from the existence of Christ apart from the people of Israel, apart from the church. We know that the witness the apostles made and the witness that we are also to make is unavailable apart from Christ and apart from exemplification in the lives of a community of people. In other words, part of that witness is the shape of our life, the shape of the story that we're living out. And so this means that the church must never cease from being a community of a particular character, a particular ethic, peace, and truth, as Paul describes it. So the command to live lives of witness is not based on the assumption that we are in the possession of of a universal truth, which others must also implicitly already possess or maybe have sinfully rejected. If such a truth existed, we would not be called upon to be witnesses, but philosophers. Rather, the command to be a witness is based upon the presupposition that we only come to the truth through the process of being confronted by the truth in Christ, in the church. And as we witness, as we strive to live out this life, as we move on mission, and we're all missionaries, aren't we? As we move on mission in the world, this truth is being made more sure to us. So we are participants in a drama, in a story that is still unfolding. Um, The book of Acts, in a sense, is an open-ended book And the book is, the story is still being told in us. So we do not turn to scripture simply to read about stories of the past, but to understand the the story of which we are a part. And so the stories, you know, of the Old Testament that Jesus says, well, in me, you know, that, that the truth of these things cohere in me. It's not just that they're pedagogical devices, but they actually epitomize a different mode of rationality. They're not stories, narrative are not deficient explanations, 
that we hope someday to supplant with more literal accounts, but rather narratives are necessary exactly for those aspects of our lives that admit of no further explanation. Just by saying that God is a person and that ultimate reality is personal, the way you get at that is through a narrative reality. I believe this is what distinguishes the Jewish people from any other people. What lifted the Jews from obscurity to permanent greatness is certainly their passion for meaning, but it's finding connection then in a coherent narrative. And a way of understanding this passion is in terms of a connectedness or engagement, you know, finding meaning with God, creation, human existence, history, morality, justice, through an unfolding story. And always think here in the background of what I described last week of kind of the disconnectedness, the alienation, a loss of meaning that's there in idolatrous religion. The Jews are struggling against this disconnectedness, uh, which is characteristic of idolatry. And so the contrast between the Jews might be approached you know, with other people through maybe just boredom. Uh, the idea, you know, as you read about a kind of disconnected boredom. And the ground that, that the Jews' passion for meaning, and I think the Christian passion for meaning, is that we find a connectedness in all things. Uh, and I believe that idolatry, alienation, our kind of removedness from the world uh, results in obscurity and disconnectedness. In the beginning, God. And so from the beginning to end, the Jewish, the Christian quest for meaning is rooted in our understanding the unfolding person and work of God in history. And so maybe where the Jews differed from their neighbors, maybe all the religions, you know, or many of the religions, they have the idea of, of personalism, but in, Christ, in Judaism and Christianity, it is the idea of a nature-transcending person, you know, for the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Syrians, um, that each major power of nature was a distinct deity. There was not an overall meaning. There was not an overall coherence or narrative. Think again, you know, Psalms 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. That all things cohere in him, the Alpha and Omega. And so the idea of God being over nature, that's such a novel concept. Nature itself is the context, you know, in which the pagan gods function. And thus, ultimate reality is unapproachable. It's prosaic. It's chaotic. Very often, it's amoral. And it's usually hostile. While for Jews, creation is accessible. And Christians, it's orderly. It's moral. And as pronounced in the creation story, it's very good. Going out and seeing Dell and Mary Sue's farm, I, I said to them, I don't, that you're, you've got a little piece of heaven out here. You know, it's good. It's very good. 
God pronounces that. And I think we find that goodness on a daily basis just in the beauty of God's creation around us, his provision for us. Uh, It is not that our monotheism is so much the difference as our belief in it's our belief in God God's character as revealed to us in Christ that sets us apart and and I think sets the uh, even in the Old Testament uh, the understanding of God apart so there is a meaning in personhood or in this interpersonal as the ultimate reality so the idol is not personal but I think human religion is based upon the impersonal. It's not open to relationship. And it's marked then by separation. Look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 3 to 5. And I'm just thinking here of this inanimate dullness, kind of a boredom. For the customs of the people are delusion, because it is wood cut from the forest. The work of the hands of a craftsman with cutting a cutting tool. They decorate it, and of course what's being described is an idol. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. The way I depicted idolatry last week was, it's a kind of typical manifestation of the alienation characteristic of sin. I believe that idolatry is just a manifestation of what Paul calls the body of death in which he describes the members of my body are over and against the law of my mind and makes this makes me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. The body of death does its work uh, as the body itself with its members stands outside of the law of the mind or the symbolic world. And this is the death, you know, this is the, the, what Paul is depicting as a kind of body of death or death drive. We seem not to possess ourselves. We have bodies. Let me say it again. We have bodies. We are not bodies. As if we're detached from ourselves. It's almost like we view ourselves. You know, the image is out there. The idol is out there. And we come then to the image of Christ in a very different way. Uh, than the way that we come to other things, the way that we see things in the world, and maybe even the way we see ourselves. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 5 to 9. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Paul's giving us two frames of understanding two kinds of mental outworking. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind on the spirit is life and peace. In one, it's a static, inanimate, dull orientation to death. The other is a dynamic, living peace, you know, the presence of God. 
Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. There is an inherent hostility toward God in the former frame of mind. And the idea is that we are transformed to this new frame of mind. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So the idea is that the image of Christ displaces the image, the spectral image of the idol. Or the spectral way, in fact, of apprehending truth. Achieving the likeness of Christ is a dynamic process that Paul describes as setting the mind on the things above, on the things of the spirit. It involves an active submission of walking as he walked, of patience, living life as he lived it, living his story on a continuing basis in our lives. His story is our story as we walk it out. For the law, what the law could not do, Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. He's enabled us through Christ, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And he says that the requirements of the law, the ethic of the law, is now meant in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, following the story of Christ, walking according to the Spirit. And so in Paul's depiction, the split eye, you know, the I do what I do not want to do and what I want to do I do not do. In this understanding, it's as if life is one you know, long, continuous struggle. And he describes it as ending in a struggle under the de- unto death. Who will rescue me? And then in picture chapter 8 is the picture of this rescue. The image of Christ and the law of Christ arise simultaneously to displace the false mind, the false imagination, the false way of apprehending the world. And this new worldview is not characterized by sinful desire. Desire does not appear in chapter 8 of Romans. It is there all through chapter 7. Rather, desire has been displaced by hope. And what is hope? Hope, I think, is the unfolding of this narrative possibility. It is a seeing of the future and bringing that future in the present to transform our entire lives. Hope is inclusive of the will the imagination, our minds are transformed in hope so that it's no longer desire pitted against the law or against reason, but rather hope has all the characteristics of a story which we know the outcome of. And we're already living as if that outcome is the case. Where the split or alienation you know, between I and the law focuses on fulfilling or, you know, it's all that whole story in chapter 7, or even the, the picture of idolatry, 
It's all about self-relation. Uh, but here we have a relationship that opens. It's an un, you know through the unseen image of Christ. We have a relationship to God. We have a relationship to other people. We have a relationship to the world. And so it does not, in this sense, it does not misrecognize our mortal bodies. But it presumes that through the spirit, the body is to be resurrected. And we are already living out this resurrection life. There is the sense that, you know, this desire arises through lack. There's something missing. But the ground of hope is life in the spirit, which has its conformity, Paul says in 8.29, to the image of Christ. We're being conformed, we're being transformed. Um, Wittgenstein said, words have meaning only in the stream of life. Then we understand with this idea that any invitation to Christian belief must be an invitation to membership in this story, to membership in this community, to membership uh, in this living out the way of Christ. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is the command to all of us corporately, to, cor- uh, to a familial, you know, this is righteousness has always to do with relationship. Righteousness is not just our individual righteousness, but it's one that we have in relationship, we are made right in our relations with God, with other people in the world. So the calling or summons to relationship and its accomplishment is in and through the very word that God has spoken, uh, of being a child of God, being able to in, you know, love one another. Uh, and this stands in, a, in contrast to the oppression of alienation under the law. Uh, you did not receive, Paul says, a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And thus we cry out, Abba, Father. So I've described it as a passage from dependence upon sight, uh, upon even maybe reason, and it's, uh, it presu- that presumes there's power you know, in and of ourselves. Uh, that it need not be coupled with a larger story. But I think by living out this story, becoming a part of the story of Christ, that's part of the empowerment that is described. That a vision devoid of worldview or narrative makes no more sense than law devoid of promise and grace. I've been, this past week I was writing, I don't know if you, in my various blogging, I was writing on religious experience and on, you know, there's a whole focus now on uh, enlightenment, on experiencing a special oneness or mood. And I think what's missing is what I'm describing. It's the missing narrative. Uh, This past week, the head of the Shambhala International, it's the largest Buddhist organization in the West, He was forced to step down. Here was the man who had enlightenment. If anybody had it in Shambhala Buddhism, this guy had it. Uh, But they forced him to step down because of his unethical behavior. Um, 
I talked last week, you know, in uh, Japan, there's a whole school of religion, the Kyoto school, that was very much involved in fascism. The point being that notions of enlightenment, notions of a kind of ecstatic counter, encounter devoid of the narrative of Christ necessarily leaves out the ethic, necessarily leaves out the life of Christ and the manner in which he lived. And so there is a kind of detachment. I think it's there in Buddhism. You know, this is, did the, the leader of the Shambhala organization, did he do these things in spite of his Buddhism? Or in fact, was it a, a, a kind of part of the, the uh, subservience to a detached understanding? And I think it's exactly that. As we try to detach ourselves or we imagine ourselves outside of this world, there's a sense that we're just living out the law of sin and death. And this is a giving in to this split, to this alienation, to this, uh, you know, this dualism. So, certainly, part of what it means to identify with Christ, and this is my conclusion, with the truth of Christ, part of that means that uh, we relinquish the notion that truth is something that we possess or own. That is, Christian truth, this truth, this story, is not simply my truth. It's God's truth, it's God's narrative, it's God's story that we've joined. In some way, it is not reducible to my comprehension. Um, At the same time, this truth is both a person and personal, which means this truth does not float free of the particulars of the incarnation, the story of Christ. And so the personal nature of the truth of Christ, while it cannot be reduced to you know, propositions, he did this or we believe this, uh, but it does certainly pertain to the specifics of what he taught and who he is. This isn't a delimitation of truth, but it is foundational, I believe, to building a holistic understanding of truth. The truths of science, history, philosophy, the truths of religion, and I believe even the truths of experience find their coherence in the person and work of Christ and the story that is unfolding and continuing to unfold. So this coherence necessarily escapes any one finite mind, and it certainly involves the ineffable, the mystical, Still, this truth does not float free of the particulars of his story. The personal nature of the truth of Christ cannot be reduced to propositions, but who he is pertains to the specifics of what he taught and who he is, his story. Let's sing together. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, 
or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.